The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to continue on in our basics of uh, biblical counseling, and we're going to actually jump into counseling marriage problems. So what we'll do is we'll review the seven eyes next week, all right, and in a sense sort of apply those to uh, marriage uh, issues. But today, what we're going to do is we're going to give, um, in a sense, sort of a, a framework for how to approach um, helping people with marriage problems. So let's go ahead and pray and ask for the Lord's uh, help. Father, we thank you that you have called us to, uh, to help one another, to encourage one another, to correct one another. And we thank you uh, for the gift of marriage. And we pray now, Lord, as we look at how to help um, people having marriage problems, that you would give us grace and insight from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So I didn't ask uh, Charlie this ahead of time, but um, on the whole, Charlie, what percentage would you say of all the counseling that the, that the elders do, what percentage actually is made up of, of marriage counseling? What's that? Yeah, I would say 75, 80%, okay? Which is, is, is amazing to me, considering all the problems we as sinners could possibly have. Um, marriage is just one of those that continually, there's all kinds of, of issues. And so what we're going to do is I have six, uh, six points. And the first is this, is that the Bible presents marriage in the highest and most joyful terms. All right. There's, there's really, there's no relationship in all of creation. That's a human relationship that is uh, supposed to be more glorious and more joyful than the marriage union. And I would say that there's two very distinct reasons for that. And the first is this, the, the purpose for which marriage exists is what? Okay, that's not, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a byproduct. It's not the purpose of marriage. It is to reflect Christ and the church, right? That, by the way, that, is, that, that supersedes procreation. It supersedes, it supersedes everything about marriage. Marriage exists to, ref, to glorify God through reflecting Christ and the church. And so in Ephesians 5, a passage which you all are familiar with, of course, the apostle gives instructions to wives to be subject to their own husbands as to the Lord, and then he instructs husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. And so then, at the end of that text, he quotes to us Genesis 2.24, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul says something that's absolutely astonishing. This mystery. Genesis 2.24 isn't a mystery. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife. They'll become one flesh. What's mysterious about that? Well, here's the mystery, is that that relationship was created to actually reflect the pre-existing relationship of Christ and his people. It's not as if... um, you know, God creates marriage and says, oh, you know what? I think I actually have just come up with a good illustration of Jesus and his bride. No, it's the other way around. And so there is this, there is this wonderful sense that marriage in the garden and marriage in the new creation is to be reflected in our marriages. 
right? So Adam, a type of Christ. Eve, a type of the church. Christ in the church, right there in the garden. What do you have in the new creation? You have the marriage supper of the Lamb. You have the bride, the wife of the Lamb, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, forever joined together with her husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so those two great bookends actually are to be reflected in our marriages. And so if that's the purpose of marriage, then that is, of course, put in the highest and most joyful terms you could possibly imagine. Your relationship to your children, as wonderful and precious as that is, isn't a reflection of Christ in the church. It's your marriage. It's your relationships. By the way, this is why it is, it is wrong, okay? morally wrong, to put your relationship with your children above your relationship with your spouse. Okay? Second reason why the Bible, or how the Bible presents marriage in the highest, most joyful terms, is that there is a joy in marriage that's described in what we could, what we could consider to be superlative terms. It's a covenant of companionship. Genesis 2.24, the two shall become one flesh. By the way, the one flesh is more than the sexual union. It's not less than the sexual union, but it's more than the sexual union. There is a unity between the husband and the wife, which is absolutely unique. There is the joy and the privilege of, of procreation, being parents. There's the joy of actually growing old together. And so it's not good for man to be alone. And so what does God do? He puts Adam into a deep sleep, takes one of his ribs, creates woman, and Adam is blown away. Ah, now this is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. She shall be called Isha because she was taken from Ish. Beautiful, beautiful. That's what God does does in the garden. And then you have throughout uh, redemptive history, then you end up having passages that are um, uh, stunning. For instance, uh, Proverbs 5, 15 to 18, right? And so Solomon is telling his son to actually be and, and, and this is the language. The New American Standard says, be exhilarated always in her love. The language is be intoxicated always with her love. And then there are other parts of that passage, which, which for Ariel's sake, I'll bypass right now so that she's not embarrassed. I, uh, I, I, I put, poured concrete one time when we lived in the ranchos, and I put, I put in big letters, Brian and Ariel, Proverbs 5 a, uh, 15 through 18, and she walks out and she looks at it and she says, is that the passage I think it is? And I said, yes, it's the passage you think it is. And she's like, we're going to have to take that out if we ever move. And I said, we're not going to have to take it out. She goes, what if somebody looks it up and sees what it says? <laughs> then, of course, you just have something as simple as Ecclesiastes 9.9. Enjoy life, this fleeting life, with the woman whom God has given you. Short life, and God gives the gift of a spouse, right? So that's the Bible standard, right? That's what marriage is supposed to be. It's, it's given to us in the most glorious, glowing, joyful terms. Why? Because it reflects Christ in the church, and it is the, it is the greatest earthly blessing that we can have. Okay? And so I've said before that there is, there is no joy like the joy 
of a happy marriage. But we all know that that ends up not even being, even in the church, the majority. So, number two, sin has vandalized the marriage bond. And so that language, by the way, is very intentional. Sin has vandalized the marriage bond so that, number one, marriage does not reflect Christ in the church, and thus a vandalized marriage does not honor God as it should. So if you have, and there's no such thing as a perfect marriage, we'll talk about that in a minute, but if, if sin has so vandalized the marriage bond that it does not even, even remotely reflect Christ in the church, then that marriage is not honoring to God. The Bible recognizes difficult, challenging, and painful marriages. Does it not? If you can read Job 2, 9 and 10 and read about Mrs. Job's great counsel to her suffering husband, why don't you just curse God and die and not see in that significant pain in marriage? By the way, I would, I would suggest that, that Job's wife is his greatest trial. (laughs) The Bible recognizes difficult and painful marriages when God intentionally tells Hosea in Hosea 1-2, go and take for yourself a wife of harlotry. How do you think that marriage was? By the way, it's absolutely amazing that that's what God would tell the prophet. And, of course, he does. And uh, Hosea's experience is reflective of God's experience with his uh, adulterous people. Or um, even First Peter um, chapter 3 the counsel to wives is that they may have a husband who's what? Disobedient to the word. Right? There's debate actually in First Peter 3 whether that is a description of an unbeliever or just a, um, a wayward Christian husband. But... The fact is, is that to have a spouse who's disobedient to the word is going to make for a grievous marriage. If that disobedience is because of they're, they're not converted, that's painful in its, in its own way. If that husband is disobedient to the word as a believer, that's painful actually in another way. So the Bible doesn't give us some sort of Pollyanna view of marriage, but rather it, 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 it's telling us that if, if sin has so tainted and corrupted the marriage bond that you're no longer, that marriage is, is not even remotely reflective of Christ and the church, then that marriage is not glorifying God as it ought to. You see, if you're married and you're a Christian, your, your, your preeminent goal should be to want to glorify God in your marriage. Right? I want to glorify God in the way that I'm, I'm a husband or the way that I'm a wife. I want to glorify God in the way that we treat each other and so forth. And so sin vandalizes that bond and therefore... When sin has vandalized the marriage bond, it creates a unique misery and pain that can consume each spouse. You do understand that's what happens, right? So if you have a miserable marriage, you're dealing with somebody that has a miserable marriage, they're consumed with the misery of their marriage. 
It's not like they are able to put it out of their minds. Why? Because you're living together. And so here you take this bond that's supposed to be the closest bond of, of any human bond, and it ends up being uh, one that's filled with pain and suffering, and that cannot be anything but consuming. And so, the misery of, of let's just call it vandalized marriages, right? So remember, sin is the vandalism of shalom. If you have vandalized marriage, the misery of that steals joy, right? Is it, is it possible to be like a genuinely happy person and be in an utterly miserable, painful marriage? I would say that the misery and the pain is so consuming that it makes it incredibly hard it also, um, a miserable marriage cripples usefulness in the body of Christ. If you're so consumed about uh, a miserable marriage, um, how, how useful can you be in actually serving? Now, sometimes, sometimes um, you have somebody in a miserable marriage and... and they pour themselves into the church and they and they serve that way, right? But the goal should be that husband and wife are serving together, right? So a miserable marriage actually cripples usefulness. Um, it sets a bad example to the children. This is one of the, by the way, one of the cosmic crimes of having a miserable marriage is that you are actually setting an example before your children that's doing what? Well, you're not setting before them uh, Christ and the church. You're not setting before them uh, a, a, a love, a sacrificial love for one another. You're not setting before them, you're not setting before them what marriage is supposed to look like. You wonder how many kids grow up in a Christian home and they, they have parents who are in an absolutely miserable, sinful marriage and make all kinds of conclusions. You do understand that kids that are in a family where the marriage is miserable, they're interpreters. And what are they doing? They're interpreting stuff about marriage and life based on not what they see in the Bible, but the contradiction that they see in what their parents are living and what they see in the Bible. It's also a bad witness to the world, right? So, I know this is like, like hey, Merry Christmas, thanks, pastor. So in a miserable marriage, Satan wins a small victory by putting Christians on the shelf, not being useful in their churches or to others, by setting bad examples to their children, causing their children to miss out on Christ and the church. In a miserable marriage, the gospel is eclipsed. And damage is done not just to the spouses, but to actually everybody that's in their orbit. So, what makes marriage a miserable, God-dishonoring, corrosive relationship? Okay. So let me just be real clear. What makes marriage a miserable, God-dishonoring, corrosive relationship is not marriage problems. Okay? It's not even sin. Okay. Will sin be in every marriage? Yeah. So when sinners say I do, Dave Harvey, by the way, if you've never read Dave Harvey's book, When Sinners Say I Do, that book is one of the best marriage books I've ever read. So 
Guess who gets married? Even when you get two Christians that, that are married. Guess who gets married? Two sinners get married. Okay? So, does, does sin just automatically make a marriage miserable? The answer is no. It is not the case. Every marriage has problems because two sinners are married. Ariel and I have been married for 36 years. Okay? Right? And a half. (laughs) You know when she's counting the half years that... Total bliss, right? So just tell everybody nice and loud, total bliss. Have I sinned against my wife over the years? And the answer is yes. I sin against my wife all the time. And she sins against me all the time. Okay? It's just true. It's not because she's a bad wife or I'm a bad husband. It's because we're sinners. What do sinners do? Sinners sin against each other, right? And so the issue is not just normal sinfulness. Because in a healthy marriage, what happens? Well, when, when one sins against the other, there is confession, there's repentance, there's forgiveness, and there's reconciliation. You know what that is? That's the gospel put at work. Real simple. So actually, one of the, one of the big things, we're going to jump ahead from a point we're going to make next week. Learning to actually love each other as sinners is huge. Okay? I'm married to a sinner. I'm married to a big sinner. She's married to a bigger sinner. But you know what? We love each other and we believe in the gospel and therefore we believe in the cross of Jesus and we believe in the power of forgiveness and we believe in reconciliation and we believe actually that all of the benefits that come to us through the gospel are ours and they apply to our marriage. Now, What makes a miserable marriage? Well, first, okay, so let's start sin problems. But we said that's not the main issue. The main issue is sinful responses to sin problems. You understand there's a difference. If I say a sharp word... And immediately my conscience is struck and I'm like, you know what, hon, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have spoke to you that way. Guess what? Now, now, she has the power to make or break the relationship at that moment. Right? If she says, I know you're an idiot. I forgive you. <laughs> Like, great, (laughs) we'll move on. Um, But if she responds sinfully to my sin, what's the chances that I'm going to respond sinfully to her sinful response? Yeah, pretty high. Okay, so by the way, now you've started the, 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 the game of ping pong in marriage. Now it becomes a matter of who can win. I want to say, once you start down that road, you are in bad shape. Sinful responses to sin evoke more sinful responses, which evoke further sinful responses. And then what happens if you give that enough time? By the way, if that's not taken care of quickly, guess what happens? Over time, and it doesn't have to be a long period of time, you can actually start growing in disaffection for this person that's supposed to be the closest person to you in this world. Disaffection is your, 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 your heart is growing colder to that person. 
Because now all you do is you just see that person through the lens of all of these hurts and all of these sins. And that's all you see. And vice versa. And so if there's growing disaffection, there will be growing distrust. If there's growing distrust, there's growing dissatisfaction. And what ends up happening is that beautiful, glorious, joyful bond that God created begins to to erode. And as that bond erodes through disaffection, dissatisfaction, distrust, anger, bitterness, so forth, then what ends up happening is at the end of the day, misery has just increased exponentially. So what are some of the sin problems that if not dealt with biblically, end up being bigger problems. Well, I have a list here. This list is not exhaustive. I didn't give you anything in the list, did I? Okay. There's a reason for that. It want your spouses like writing down your spouse's sins. By the way, that's, can I just tell you that that's typically where we start when we think about marriage problems? All right, so what are the sin problems? Okay, so there's, there's going to be like the dirty dozen, okay? But I want to say that there's one sin problem that is, that is like an overarching one that is a marriage killer. And that is expecting more out of marriage than it, than it is intended to give and expecting more from your spouse than what they're able to be. Why is that a sin? If you are looking to marriage to... to to give you something and you're looking to a spouse to be something to you, then at that point, marriage and then your spouse has become an idol. Now, by the way, we're not always friendly with our idols. If we feel that our idol is letting us down, we can get angry with our idol, go to war with our idol because our idol's not living up to our idolatrous expectations. So when, and, and we have couples in, right here in this room and in the Sunday school classes that have sat down with me for premarital counseling, and the very first time we sit down, I tell them that marriage is going to be way harder than you think it is sitting in my office right now. I try to discourage them, I try to disappoint them, I try to depress them, <clears throat> are unrealistic expectations in marriage a problem they're a massive problem so the first is expecting more out of marriage than it's intended to give or expecting more from your spouse than they are able to be A lot of times people end up trying to look to their marriage or their spouse to give them only what God in Christ can give them and therefore they are never happy, never satisfied and they focus on what they're trying to get out of marriage as opposed to what they can give. We could probably end right there. I won't ask for a show of hands, but you've ever felt disappointed in your spouse? You ever wish that he or she would be more to you than they are? Have you ever been, um, uh, have this uh, low-grade fever of discontent 
and when you peel back the, the, the layers of the onion, it ends up simply uh, being a reality that you expected this person to make you happy. They're not making you as happy as you want to be. Okay. By the way, there's a word for somebody that looks to another human being to make them happy. It's called dummy. Okay? If you look to another human being to give you happiness, okay, you're, you're going to be disappointed. Okay? I mean, Ariel's a glad except, exception, but <laughs> I've exceeded her wildest dreams. You can't, you can't do for each other what you feel you need. That, that only Jesus can do that for you, right? Okay, so we could talk about that for a very long time. Um, there are other sin problems that are profoundly um, damaging if, if responded to sinfully. or And by responded to, I can respond to my own sin unbiblically. When we talk about sinful response, we're not just talking about the way the spouse responds. That's obviously the the primary thing that we think of. But there's also a sense in which the way that I respond to my own sin may may, may further the damage. So here are a bunch that are terrible and common. One, sexual infidelity. The one flesh bond has been violated. The covenant has been violated. And if you want to know how terrible the sin is, I want you to stop and think about the fact that in the Old Testament, when God wants to express the, the pain of an idolatrous people, he puts it in terms of marital infidelity. There's also sexual distance or coldness. Now, most of the young people are gone, so I can tell you this. God has created sex not only to bring little image-bearing rugrats into this world, okay? But he's also created sex to deepen the marital bonds and to deepen marital affection. So, and Paul, by the way, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7, to uh, withhold or to be sexually distant or cold is a sin problem. Of course, there is Abuse, and abuse can be in various forms. It can be physical. It can be abusive speech, which we would call verbal abuse. And you can torment somebody mentally and emotionally, torment them. And that that constitutes a form of abuse. There's the sin of control. Always needing to be in control. By the way, this isn't just a uh, guy-husband problem. But both husbands and wives can suffer from wanting to be in, in such control of their spouse that they uh, actually are, are continually behaving in a sinful way to their spouse. How much money did you spend at the grocery store? Did did you spend more than the $20 I put in the envelope for you? I've got to feed five kids. Well, I know. When I was a kid, my mom made $20 stretch. Okay. Okay. We laugh. That's evil. That is evil. Okay. Or... The controlling wife 
who's trying to control every single thing her husband does from the time he wakes up in the morning, including the time he wakes up in the morning, to the time he goes to bed at night. Evil. By the way, what is the likelihood that you can ever be truly at peace with a controlling person who's trying to control every aspect of your life? The answer is you're destroying peace by trying to exert the control. Anger. Anger manifests itself in different ways, doesn't it? There's the person that blows up. This is the person that's got outbursts of anger. By the way, maybe that's maybe that's uh, uh, correlates to the to the volume of your voice. But there are people that can be viciously angry and never raise their voice. So you got the blow up person, and then you got the stuff it person. That person's angry too, but they're just stuffing it down. Does the spouse feel that? By the way, stuffing it is not self control. It's just a sinful response. Anger is absolutely destructive. Secrecy, which is often associated with a life-dominating sin. Gambling, alcohol, drugs. What's associated with secrecy is you're trying to cover up a life-dominating sin. Lying, lying, secrecy, and trying to hide a life-dominating sin. Well, then you also have the life-dominating sin itself, right? What about just good old-fashioned selfishness? What's what's selfishness in marriage look like? Everybody's like afraid to say something because then they'll think, well, people think I'm talking about myself or my spouse. (laughs) What's selfishness look like? Okay, well, in simplest terms, since you all are so reluctant, It's just putting yourself first. It's my needs that need to be met. What's the opposite of selfishness? The opposite of selfishness is Philippians 2. Thinking more highly of others than yourself. Right? Putting the other person first. Sometimes... We need marriage to expose how selfish we are. And then if you're not convinced, have children. And then you really start to see, right? So there is, by the way, are you born selfish? Of course you are. We all are born selfish. Is there a way that selfishness is exhibited in marriage that is absolutely destructive to the marriage bond? And the answer is yes. The one that's always insistent that they have their way. The one that's always insistent that they're right. The one that's always insistent that everything go their way. Selfish plus control. Well, since this list is so edifying, we'll do one more. So, lack of unity on parenting and money. Lack of unity on parenting. Can that cause conflict in a marriage? Yes. 
Mom thinks we ought to beat the living snot out of them. Dad thinks we ought to take them to Baskin-Robbins. Discipline. What the kids are allowed to do and not to do can be an incredible source of conflict. Now, here's, here's the thing. Notice that the sin itself is, is not disagreement, but it is a, a lack of, of having unity, right? So if there's differences in a healthy marriage, you should be able to discuss those differences and come to some rev, uh, resolutions or, or even some compromises, right? With hopefully the word of God being your standard, being your guide, um, but there are going to be times where that lack of unity on how we raise our kids ends up um, just being a continual source of contention. Same thing could be said about money. And so what are some of the sinful responses? Well, I mean, first of all, obviously unforgiveness. Okay. So let, let's put it in, in, a, in a way that... that, that attacks both sides of the problem. One, um, a lack of asking for forgiveness. And then, on the other hand, being unforgiving. So if, if, the, if the guilty spouse is not actually asking for forgiveness, that's a problem. It is that sin problem that compounds the original sin problem. You know, I was sitting down with a, a woman one time. This was years and years and years ago. She said, my husband and I have been married for almost 40 years, and he's never one time asked me for forgiveness, let alone told me he was sorry. Okay. Quite honestly, I don't know how you can be a Christian and not be continually asking for forgiveness. So if you're here and you're a husband and you don't ask your wife regularly for forgiveness, you're in sin. Okay? You should repent. And you should be quick to ask for forgiveness. Okay? Now, the other sinful response is being unforgiving. Is it possible that the guy says or the gal says, I'm sorry, I was wrong, please forgive me. And the, the offended spouse says, um, no. Bitterness. By the way, bitterness often grows very quickly in the soil of unforgiveness. Bitterness... You've heard this before. You've heard it from me before. Bitterness is drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. Bitterness destroys your own soul. In Hebrews 12, 15, see to it that no root of bitterness, which by the way is a person, not an attitude, springs up among you and cut off from the grace of God and by it many are defiled. Bitterness, by the way, People that are bitter are people that harbor grudges. They're unforgiving. They have, they have no concept what it is to uh, actually quote 1 Peter 4, 8, love covers a multitude of sins, and the bitterness is just a cancer on their soul, and that bitterness actually then spreads. You want to you ruin your kids? Be a bitter person. Then, of course, there's the sinful response of revenge, which, by the way, you, you do need, you, you don't need to be told revenge is not an option, right? Maybe you need to be told. Revenge, um, or what often goes with revenge, manipulation. Revenge and manipulation often look like using sex to punish or to manipulate, using money or affection or the kids to punish or manipulate. There's another sinful response which we could just simply identify as lack of communication. This is, this is the passive-aggressive approach. Okay? 
I'm going to punish you by moving into Cold War mode. Lack of communication or being passive. In other words, refusing to talk, refusing to actually engage, refusing. And, and by the way, sometimes people will, will use this method of, of a, a, what we call a Cold War tactic, tactic, right? Use it and then pretend that they're just exercising self-control. And the reality is they're just punishing the other person. We should talk about this. I'm not going to talk about this. I've talked about this with you six times. I'm done. Or just giving the silent treatment. By the way, the silent treatment is sinful. Uh, Let's see, what else can we look at? Oh, then there's just sinful communication, right? Being aggressive... Abusive speech, controlling speech. So if, if lack of communication is Cold War, aggressive communication is Blitzkrieg. Okay. Just, you're just going to bombard them with your words that go on and on and on and on. And at the end of the day, all you're doing by multiplying words beyond belief is trying to get them to just say, Uncle, you win! Then, of course, we just get down to good old-fashioned hatred. Can't even stand the person anymore. You have to understand, sinful responses to sin, whether in ourselves or um, the sinful response of a spouse, what, what happens in a marriage is that then habits are formed. Some couples get so adept at arguing that they could probably have an entire argument without even saying a word because they already know what the other one's going to say. You could just point to the other one and they nod their head and then they point to you and you nod your head and you already know what's already being said. So habits. Have you ever noticed, don't raise your hand, have you ever noticed that arguments or fights often are just a rerun? Of the last one. Very rarely is there any new material. And so those habits are formed. What happens when those habits are formed? There is no communication, right? Bitterness grows, hearts are hardened, and the relationship, instead of being that source of joy, uh, ends up becoming a battleground. The guy's coming home from work, and the wife is dreading when he walks in the door. The guy comes home from work, and he's dreading walking in the door. It's just a battleground. Landmines all over the place. And so what I want to ask you is, where is the gospel in a marriage like this? answer is it's absent. It's completely absent. If the marriage has deteriorated to this kind of, of, of state, the gospel is absent. Where's the reality of God's grace? Where's the reality of God's spirit? Where's the reality of the cross? Where's the reality of forgive one another? Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Where's that reality? And the answer is it's, it's nowhere to be found. This is one of the reasons why 75 to 80% of the counseling that's done it revolves around marriage counseling. 
So we're going to wrap up with this. What are the challenges to helping a married couple? I only have like four minutes, and there's no way to list all of them, all right? So let me just give you a few. Challenges to helping a married couple. So couple comes, they are at each other's throats. It is battleground. It is, it is lobbing grenades at each other, sniping at each other. I mean, it is bad. And they come in. What are the challenges to actually helping the married couple? And that is only one spouse thinks the marriage needs help. How often is that? Does that happen? It happens all the time. And normally it goes something like this. The wife sits down and she's in tears and she says, our marriage is, has, has deteriorated and we can't even talk anymore. And the guy's like, I thought it was great. Dinner was done on time. Giants game was uninterrupted. What more could a guy want? Another challenge, each spouse is focused only on the sin or sins of the other. This is the big one, by the way. They come in and they're focused. They want change. But what they're focused on is the sin or sins of their spouse. Thinking, at the end of the day, boil it all down, they're the problem. Third, each spouse wants something more than they want God glorified in their marriage. If by the grace and spirit of God, you can't move towards reconciliation with your spouse, it is because one or typically both of you want something more than you want God to be glorified in your marriage. What's the source of quarrels and fights among you? You have desires and they're unmet. You have wants and they go unmet. And so you go to war. I want respect. I want to be loved. By the way, you start putting your wants and desires as, as the preeminent, this is, this is the, um, the, the, the sine qua non, the without which nothing, my respect. I just want my husband to fall down and worship me. By the way, this is where you start looking for causes and not symptoms. Then, of course, there's pride that blinds the spouse to their own sin. And by the way, if I, you just heard me say, and then there's pride that blinds a spouse to their, to their own sin. And then you just said, yeah, that's their problem. Guess what? It's actually your problem. One of the biggest challenges is that people come in with a sense of hopelessness that change will never happen. It's the way it's always been. It's the way it is always going to be. And then finally, and there of course is more, each spouse is waiting for the other to make the first move. I'll respect him when he starts loving me. I'll start loving her when she starts respecting me. You know what we call that in Westerns? It's a Mexican standoff. Okay, okay for those of you who have never seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, I feel sorry for you because that's a great illustration right there. You're just simply waiting for the other one to make the move. Guess what? If you stand there waiting for the other person to make the move and then you're going to do what you should do, how long are you going to wait? And by the way, if you're not going to do anything until they do something, if they finally do something, will you be doing something out of the right motive? 
Mm. Just waiting for the other one to make the first move is deadly. So, um, what we should be astonished at is that the divorce rate isn't higher, that the homicide rate isn't higher. Is there hope? And the answer is a resounding yes. There is hope. If, if you are in Christ Jesus, there is hope. There's hope in Christ. There's hope in his gospel. There's hope through his spirit. There's hope in the word. And there's hope offered in the church. There's hope. Now, just in closing, and we'll pick up next week on actually some practical steps on trying to help people. There's no misery like marriage misery. And there is no, there are rarely as complicated situations as there are in painful marriages. Because it's not just back to one thing. Complicated, deep wounds, emotions, sometimes years of offenses. And here's the irony is that oftentimes you have two Christians that actually, I mean, really do. They're they're serious about their faith and they love God and, and you look at their relationships at work or in the neighborhood and and they are wonderful, solid Christian people, treating people with grace, extending the gospel to them and all of these arenas of life have the aroma of Christ and then you walk into the home and the aroma of Christ is gone. And there is this profound lack of connecting the dots between the gospel that we love and our marriage. It's as if now marriage is a different universe. So, if any of the things that we talked about today mark you, okay, let me just simply say you have one obligation as your first step and that is to repent. You have to repent. You have to confess that sin or those sins to God, to your spouse. Well, I'll, I'll ask forgiveness when they ask for forgiveness. Okay, if you want to do that Mexican standoff again on that one, then you're never, again, what's the motivation? So you need to confess, you need to ask for forgiveness, and you might need help. You might need help. Or you might find that actually running to God and crying out to him for the grace and the mercy that you need to be the husband you're supposed to be or the wife you're supposed to be may end up being what, is the, what causes the breakthrough. So none of us have perfect marriages. We're all sinners married to another sinner. But for the sake of the glory of Christ and for the good of our kids and our witness to a watching world, please put the gospel to work in your marriage. Be forgivers. When that happens, marriage really can be a joy in this life that's unsurpassed. So if you have a good marriage, rejoice, thank God, and protect it. If you have a miserable marriage, look at yourself. Look at yourself. And do business with God there. Let's pray. Lord, we know that uh, this has been uh, challenging for some to hear, certainly been challenging to, to say, and we pray that you would help us. We want to have marriages that do honor the Lord Jesus 
and do good to our children and to those around us. So we pray that you would help us in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.